You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Why don't we go to our our passage for this morning in Exodus chapter 2, continuing in our series, this uh, epic journey of God drawing uh, his people closer to himself. And we've learned a lot in the the first chapter of Exodus. There's been quite a bit of activity already, and and the, the drama continues. The epic journey continues of God's providential care for his, his people in the midst of suffering here. Um, we did advertise uh, starting in verse 1, but I'm going to jump back just one verse in the, in the last verse of chapter 1, and so you can follow along with me as we go through um, Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Let's draw our attention to God's word now. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when he, she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know that what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children.'" And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. Our passage this morning tells of the amazing circumstances of Moses' birth. And Moses was born under a death sentence. The king of Egypt commanded that every son that was born should be cast into the Nile to die. And Moses was born... And his mother did not do that. She hid him. She thought to him herself, but he's so cute. <laughs> Imagine if he wasn't. <laughs> uh, but this is interesting, right? What an interesting detail. He's born, and she says, but he is so cute. He looks so lovely. And she hides him and keeps him and doesn't do as Pharaoh commands. At any moment, his cries could be heard, and he could be swept away and, and taken and captured or kidnapped by one of the Egyptians and one of the authorities and thrown into the Nile River. uh, Moses' mother's name was Jochebed, and his father was Amron. And these names aren't mentioned here, but they're mentioned later. The New Testament tells us that their actions that led up to this event and their actions even of hiding Moses and and the subsequent actions of, of even making this waterproof basket and putting it in the Nile for him to survive, all of that was done because of faith. It was an act of faith in God. But this passage leaves out all those details for us today 
Because our focus is not on the actions of Jochebed. It's not on the actions of Amron. It's not even on the actions of Moses, for he was an infant and really wasn't, he was a passive participant in this. This story is hardly about the actions of the servant girls that walked along with, with Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, right? It was hardly about the actions of, of Moses' sister. All of these characters are just kind of passive participants seeing this activity unfold. Because this passage is meant to direct our attention to, not to the actions themselves, but the actions behind the actions. Behind these actions is a character that is not named. But his fingerprints are all over it. It is God who is working behind the scenes. And we're seeing this amazing story unfold that is causing us to think, this is incredible. How is this happening? Everything is falling into place. No one could write this story. No one could make this happen. All of these little details are happening perfectly. We're meant to see that there's somebody knitting all of these circumstances together to bring about an outcome that none of us could dream up or ever imagine on our, on our own. In the midst of suffering, we see a God who provides, a God behind the scenes, a God who is knitting together every last detail to bring about his purposes of salvation for his people. But very often when we see God's people suffer throughout Scripture, when we see ourselves suffer in our lives, we ask ourselves the inevitable question, why is this happening? What sense is there in this? How do I make sense of what is going on? And unfortunately, I can't answer that question for you this morning. The last thing I want to give you or that any of us can give each other is this generic pat answer for why things are happening, why God allows his people to suffer, why God allows suffering in the world. The Bible doesn't give us generic pat answers or we would be able to tell one another. The Bible doesn't tell us, oh, it's clearly laid out in this verse. This is why this, this is happening to you. But here's what the Bible does give us, and that's what we need to talk about. The Bible gives us a framework within which we can begin to see God's movement in our lives in the midst of suffering. It is meant to give us a, a framework, a context, to begin to make sense of the pain of our lives and the pain that comes to God's people everywhere. The pain that, that people have gone through for generations, the pain that we continue to experience to this very day, and the pain that we will encounter tomorrow that we are not yet aware of. We have a biblical framework to understand that pain and understand the movement of God in our lives. And if we look at the story of Exodus, we see this framework, we see this context, and we will see God dealing with his people in such a way that makes sense of our suffering without ever knowing exactly why it's happening. And therefore, when we see that, when we look at the story of Exodus and God's movement in the life of his people, we have assurance that, that God is working in the same way still in our life. Now, how does this passage help us to make sense in the midst of our suffering? I want to I show you and reveal to you from this passage three, three parts of this framework. The first part is this, is that God triumphs over suffering. This is this, this certain declaration that God wins over evil, that he triumphs over suffering of his people, that, that wickedness never gets the last word 
The more we read Exodus, the more we will, it'll become clear that, the, that any evil that attempts to thwart God's plans will be destroyed. And just in the first chapter, you start to see this foreshadowing of it. You see this evil, you see this wickedness, but you are getting clues to the story that, well, anyone who gets in God's way and in the way of his purposes for his people, they are not going to be happy. This is going to end up very poorly for them. Pharaoh was a, a wicked man who hated the plans and the promises of God. And because he hated God, he hated his people. And Pharaoh constantly attempts to annihilate the Israelites. But every time he tries, his plans are compromised. Every single time. There's so many clues in the first uh, chapter, in the second chapter, to show the irony of his actions. Pharaoh works them hard, and he, and he works them so hard so that they don't multiply. And immediately the passage says, but they still multiplied. Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill babies as they're being delivered, but the midwives fear God over Pharaoh, and the people of God continue to multiply. And not only is that, God blesses the women with greater fertility. So Pharaoh says, kill all the babies as they're coming out, and God says, I'm going to make them just multiply and have children. Fill the land. Pharaoh tells all the people of Egypt, when you see a boy being born, a Hebrew boy, throw that child into the Nile to die. And Pharaoh's very daughter rescues a child floating along in the Nile, which turns out to be the one who will defeat Pharaoh himself. I'm trying to show you what's plainly here so that you will connect the dots in your mind and also in your heart to see, okay, that's, that's, that's incredible here. All of this irony Every punishment is aimed at defeating the people of God. And I, I want you to see this too. Every one of Pharaoh's harsh, evil, and wicked actions are meant at keeping the men in place. But it's the women he should really be worried about. It's the women who end up defeating him in a sense of continuing to be faithful to God. It's the women that are the ones that God is using to bring about his plans of redemption in this. Just look at the transition from the final verse of chapter 1 and the first couple verses of chapter 2 that we read. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And then this is the start of the next chapter. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. I mean, you're seeing this like, wait a minute. So the Pharaoh just said, this is what happens to all the boys. And the next verse is, this boy is born. You're seeing God is still working. God is in the midst of this. And this boy is going to be significant in God's plans to triumph over wickedness. It's like an episode of Roadrunner and Coyote. The evil coyote trying to annihilate the Roadrunner. But every time the coyote uses this new tactic to, to defeat the the roadrunner, that same weapon is used against him. This is what God is doing. Every wickedness, every act of evil that Pharaoh is using, God is turning that against him towards his own destruction. God is proving himself. He's proving himself against the power of his enemies time and time again. God's power over suffering gives us insight into two things. It gives us insight into the power of evil, but also the power of 
of God. Think about the power of evil. This insight, in, you're reading this and you're thinking, this is wicked. This is horrible. Evil's never satisfied but it always lusts for more. Evil always wants more. Consider Pharaoh, what started out as this private plan of animosity. It's a private animosity towards the people of God, these foreigners who are just becoming greater in the land. And he forces them into slavery, forces them into manual labor, harsh labor. It starts out as animosity and turns into genocide. And you're thinking, wow, that's a really big leap. Well, this is what evil does. It starts out as a bias. It starts out as a, as a prejudice. It starts out as a fear. And step after step, evil always grows until it desires to take life and destroy it. Evil and its subsequent suffering will continue until it's stopped, until something comes in to destroy that evil. And sadly, this pattern of evil has been repeated many times throughout history. In Nazi Germany, the hatred of the Jews began as economic sanctions. It began as economic problems. And, and so they, they said, okay, you, here are some jobs that you can have, and here's some jobs that you can't have. And then the Jews were forced into these ghettos and forced into their own neighborhoods. And then those entire neighborhoods were extinguished. And, and then the whole, the whole nation, the, all of Nazi Germany were convinced that, yeah, this is the right thing to do murdered by the millions openly and with the support of the common population. And you're thinking, well, how does that happen? That's just pure wickedness. But it starts out as a bias. It starts out as a prejudice. It starts out as a, as a fear. We've seen the struggle between the life and death, life and death even within our own times. Abortion used to be a, a secret practice by a handful of abortion doctors in the country until it received the public support of the Supreme Court, and abortion clinics are everywhere in every state around the country. 30 years ago, there was no doctor, almost no doctor in the entire world that would, that would euthanize a person for that physician-assisted suicide. Now, 10 states in the U.S. do this openly. If you want to die, then you can die. If you want to kill the unborn, then you can do that. We're able to take the life of the unborn. We're able to take our own life. It's a matter of time before someone other than ourselves gets to determine who gets to live and who gets to die. You're thinking, well, that's a little extreme, isn't it? I don't think it is. We see this through history. We see this in, happening in Scripture as well. We've seen the, the evil murder. We've, seen the, we've seen, even seen it this past week, this rise in, in hatred towards people of Asian descent, which starts out as a, a bias, which starts out as a prejudice, which starts out as a fear. Wickedness doesn't stop until it is stopped. It full grown, it, takes, it desires to take away life. It desires to, to kill the image of God in others. We don't just condemn it, this kind of evil, this power of evil, when it becomes full-blown and is an atrocity. We condemn it when it is, in any degree, degrading the image of God and humanity of the least, the lost, the last of any person. Made in the image of God. Any bias, any prejudice. We've seen it in our own history. We've seen it most recently. And this is what wickedness does, and this is what God hates. 
not just when it is the taking of life, but when it begins as something that might just seem, that we might see as just small and insignificant. We call out evil wherever it is. Whether it's indifference or aggression towards African Americans, Asians, Hispanics, the poor, the immigrant, it's not an exaggeration to say that the way of all wickedness eventually leads to the degrading of the image of God in all people, unless it's somehow stopped. And that's what we need. That is what we need. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need uh, God's plans to, to have triumph over evil. And, and the Exodus story is showing us that, that God triumphs over wickedness, that his plans will always have the final say, that in the midst of suffering, their suffering, which we look back and say, how could anybody do that? This genocide, infanticide, this, the whole nation of Egypt saying, yeah, this seems like a good, a good thing to do. Let's, let's kill the, the Israelite boys. We say, well, that would, that's crazy. But it's not. It actually, this is what wickedness is. And so Exodus gives us insight into evil and suffering, but it also gives us insight into the power of God. And so when we see suffering in the world and we see it in our own life, we also should look at the power of God. When evil was rampant with the tyrannical Pharaoh, when it seemed like he was triumphing and having his own way, at that very moment, God was working in history to save his people. And his good was going to overcome. It was going to triumph wickedness. Evil, as, even as a result of evil creating suffering in the lives of his people, God is more powerful because he's making a way for a savior. You can't read this story, I don't think, without thinking, this won't end well for Pharaoh. Right? You, you, the, the writing is on the wall, so to speak. Right? You see what is going to happen. You don't know how, but you know his days are numbered, and you're thinking, God will have his way. And anyone who gets in his way or tries to thwart his plans, it will not end well for. Anyone who gets in the way of God's desire to love his people and to bring about his plans for his people, it will not end well for and the reason that Pharaoh was eventually defeated was because God triumphed over evil and crushed him, as he always does. And so it will be for all evil, so it will be for all suffering that we experience today. So we look at this, I, remember, I remind you, a framework. Exodus is a framework for how we see God working in our life today. And if you are suffering, if you weep over the wickedness in our world, we ought to see wickedness for what it is. It is evil. It is bad. It should never be minimized. The reasons and motivations for wickedness and murder should never be minimized, like we've even seen this week. But we should say, this is what evil does, and God hates it. But then we should see, but God will triumph. God is at work to bring about the rescue of his people and to usher in his new creation one day where there's no sin, there's no evil, that it's all defeated, that there's no more tears, there's no more fear. We see it and we will get to it. We will see as the story unfolds that God is a redeemer, that he's a rescuer. Moses' birth is a reminder 
of God's creative power. If you would have just read chapter 1, and if I asked each and every one of you, God will, and I told you, God will rescue his people, and I want you to create a story for how that will happen. None of you would have written it this way. Okay, here's what's going to happen. A son will be born. Pharaoh's very daughter is going to rescue this son and then pay Moses' mother to nurse him. It's like only God can be that creative to do that. Only God would do that. And this son will grow up in the house of Pharaoh as a prince and will be, have the best education and the best training in warfare and, and the best exposure to, to all that creation has to offer. And then that son will defeat Pharaoh who placed a death order on that child right even before he was born. God's creative power over evil. Whatever evil wants to do, it will not win. God will win. Wherever evil wants to minimize and degrade and exploit, God's power will triumph over evil. He's working in your suffering. In the wickedness of this world that causes pain and discouragement, he is working. Now, I have to cling to that as much as you do. I have to read this and say, but it doesn't seem like he's working. It doesn't seem like he's, he's, his power is triumphing over evil. In my life, you may not even see it in yours. And you might say, well, Pete, look at the world. Where is God triumphing? I don't have the answers to that. But I see that God is faithful. He is always faithful. His power always triumphs. We are given framework after framework after framework in his scripture. And God says, remember what I do. Remember what I'm capable of. Remember. We see all throughout scripture and in the Psalms, we see this recollection of the Egyptian story. The people of God are always saying, remember what God did. In, in the Exodus, remember how he rescued us and he did not let evil triumph. And God says, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. Which, which brings us to another piece of the framework for how to understand our suffering. And that's this, is that God's care is often secret but always constant. I know that's not what you want to hear. The writer barely mentions the name of God in the first two chapters but we're meant to see his fingerprints everywhere, aren't we? Think about it. A mother abandons her son, but in abandoning him to the river, she's entrusting him into the hands of God who she trusts. And of all people, a princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, goes down to the river to bathe, and she finds a basket. And instead of following her father's orders, which would be to kill this child, she has compassion and pity on this child. And she recognizes this child being a Hebrew son. She fetches a Hebrew woman to nurse this child and to care for this child's every needs. And that woman is Moses' very mother. And Moses' mother approaches the princess. The princess is likely is thinking, I know this is asking a lot, and you probably have a lot of better things to do, but can you care for this child and love this child as if it were your own and I'll even pay you to nurse him and to care for him, to raise him. If you ever need any clothes or toys, just, just let me know. I'm in the palace, and, and we will get you everything that you need. Uh, we'll make sure that his needs are, uh, always go met. The child will be protected uh, by national edict that, that, that the, this, he shall never come to harm. And even though he's a Hebrew son, he'll, he'll, never, 
He'll never fall under the punishment of this edict. What do you say? I hope you'll take me up on this offer. Will you care for this son? Motherhood, for every one of our moms here this morning, does not come with a paycheck. But it did for Moses' mom. This is God showing his creative power to love his people in the midst of their suffering, saying evil will not triumph. Moses would be raised in a palace, the best education available. All of this preparing him to be the redeemer of God's people from slavery. And he was trained by Pharaoh's people in order to one day overthrow Pharaoh. Who else but God could accomplish such great rescue? Who would have ever thought that one point in history, God's entire plan for the salvation of his people was floating along the Nile River? Literally all of his plans in one basket, (laughs) or all of his eggs. He wasn't going to let anything happen to him. There was a billion pieces of the puzzle that needed to happen perfectly, and if one piece of that puzzle was missing, the whole plan would have failed. If Moses' mother didn't use bitumen and pitch to waterproof the basket, he would have sunk and died. If Moses' mother didn't think he was so cute, who knows what she would have done to him. If Moses, if Moses screamed too loudly in the first three months, if anyone other than Pharaoh's daughter went down to that river at that precise moment to bathe, if she, the uh, princess, didn't have pity on Moses when she opened up the basket, Moses was never in danger because God was right there working out his salvation and the salvation of his people at every step of the way. You don't know it, but the circumstances of your life are no different. Maybe you've heard this verse so much that it's, even, it's not even encouraging anymore, but, but you hear it again. Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Can you hear it differently now? And would you hear it? fresh. The Exodus story is the perfect example and reminder that God works out the rescue of his people down to the very last detail. It's often hidden. You you will not know most of these details, but it's always constant. He never takes a break. Even in the midst of your suffering right now, he never turns an eye from you. He takes personal interest and care in the details of your lives right down to the very last number of hairs on your head. God is not concerned merely with your future salvation. He is is working out your salvation and every detail of your life to accomplish all of his plans that he has for you. He even tells us he's aware of every tear that we have cried every stumble that we make, every insult that is hurled our way, every ounce of suffering he cares for with equal measure. Not one trauma or care that we have in our heart does God say, this is really not a big deal. There are bigger things to worry about. He's working out every detail, but these are hidden 
we get to see the secret plans of God when we read Scripture. He is writing that same story for us, but we don't get to see that. We're experiencing it in real time, and we don't know the significance of it, but we will one day. It takes faith. It takes trust. It takes rest in God's revealed promises and nature and character of who he is and what he has done to know that he's working in our life right now. And even in the midst of great suffering, he will triumph over evil. Small way, well, no small way, really. Uh, I saw this happen in my life about 25 years ago. In 1996, my mother was in a, a national competition. And the winner of that competition got a new wardrobe, a brand new car, and a week-long Caribbean cruise. And my mom lost that competition. And she was very discouraged. And I was, um, what I must, I was 15 years old. And I remember even thinking back, I remember my mom just being really beat down by that. She really wanted to win. It would have been significant. It would have, it would have, it would have been the culmination of a lot of things coming into place to kind of make her feel like she was a valuable, worthy, loved person. And so she was pretty discouraged, and she was kind of beat up. I remember her taking it pretty hard. In the spring of that same year, just weeks after, uh, some of you may have remembered that uh, the Everglades um, uh, plane crash in 1996. It was a particularly gruesome plane crash. Everyone died on the plane. It was a particularly gruesome plane crash because the plane crashed in the Everglades in Florida in alligator-infested waters, and none of the passengers could have been, could be rescued because of how devastating the crash was, and, 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 and it was in the Everglades and all the alligators, and you can imagine how devastating it was. You maybe have images of this. It was on the news. I mean, it was obviously a nationwide thing. The winner of that competition that my mom lost was on that flight, receiving her prize reward going to the cruise in Miami. Very likely that my mom and dad, had she won, would have been on that plane, leaving their seven children, uh, all of them teenagers and younger, orphaned. Sometimes God's secret daily workings in our suffering are made known, but most of the time they're not. And because God was working in that time in my mom's life, you get to have a pastor like me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That, That was obviously not true. What billion things is God doing in your life right now that you have no knowledge of? What billion little circumstances, what billion little details He's wise. He's wiser than us. He's working things out in ways that we don't understand. And how he fits it all together, I don't know. In, in, in a way that he's rescuing us and, and so that we weren't orphaned as teenagers. At the same time, he was destroying an, uh, or leading another into destroying their life. How is God working out the plans for, for this woman who, who lost her life on the plane and, and, and left a family? I don't know the answer to that Why? But I know that God triumphs over evil and suffering, and he is working out his plans to the very last detail for all of his people. He will always bring about the good that he desires for us. Finally, the last piece of the framework is this. And God satisfies the deepest longings of the people he came to save. 
You see, these, these work together. We see them evident here in this story. The story of baby Moses in the basket, basket is, a, is a marvelous story of God working in history to triumph over evil, to work in our suffering, to bring about the rescue of his people. But it's not the whole story. Um, Moses was a savior, but he's not the savior. Moses was, is, it, I've mentioned this before, this is a true story. The, this, this is a true story of God's rescue of his people, but it's also a, a, a shadow of a, of a greater story. It's a, a precursor, a prototype of a kind of Savior that is to be born, Jesus Christ. And like Moses, Jesus was born under a death sentence, just like Moses. Hundreds of years after Moses, another king ordered the infanticide of all boys under two years old. You heard this before? All newborn boys ought to be slaughtered. Herod, King Herod caught wind that the promised king of the Jews was born, and so he ordered that all boys under two would be killed. If you remember how God works in history, you'll remember this doesn't end well for anyone who opposes God's plan. And at one point, the rescue of God's people was floating down a river. And at another point, we see several years, hundred years, years later, all the rescue of God's people now hangs on a cross. All of God's eggs in a basket, a wicker basket, and now all of God's eggs on the cross. And people thinking, how is this the rescue? How is this God's plan? Hanging on a cross, treated like a, tr- a criminal, hanging between two, two felons deserving of their crucifixion. Jesus is there hanging and dying. And this is because God did not stop at defeating wickedness just at a human level. But he had a plan to defeat evil once and for all, to rescue his people from the curse of sin. Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie puts it this simple but clear way. The very real story of the suffering of God's people and the raising up of a Savior sent by God is a living preview of the story of salvation accomplished through Jesus Christ. Life is not primarily about making sure that things go well for us. Life is not about making sure that that our plans are accomplished and, and, and things go as we planned and as we dreamed and as we hoped. It's not about what you and I can accomplish or even about achieving that good life that we all want. We find our meaning in life when we see God's hand turning the events of our life to draw us into his providential care and love and, and, and salvation and grace that has no end. I don't know what's going on in your life. Some of you I do. I don't know why certain suffering has come your way. I don't know when it will get better. But this is what we do know, that God is doing what he thinks is best in your life. in order to satisfy your deepest longing with his rescuing love. Do you believe that? How could that have been for Moses' mother? But somehow she believed as she put her son in a wicker basket and pushed him into the river. She had to have known God is doing 
what is best for me. Unbelievable, right? Somehow God is doing what is best for me. And God is thinking, you have no idea and I can't wait to show you. Can't wait to show you how this will turn out. Not only will you get your son back, but you're going to get paid to take care of him. The deepest longings of our heart, she gets to receive her son. He gets to be raised in a palace and he gets to save her and all of God's people. I don't know what God is doing in your life, but he's, he thinks it's best. Not only for his people generally, but, but, but you personally. We're called to trust God. We're called to trust him in, that, in, those, in those details that we don't know or understand. We're called to trust him in the way Moses' desperate mother once trusted him when she put her heart in a basket and entrusted God to her whole life and everything that she had. We look at our suffering and we say, this is so hard and evil is real, but, but God, you are so good and you're always working. Help me to trust in you.